0: Hello and welcome to another episode of the Property Voice podcast. My name is Richard Brown and as always it's a pleasure to have you join me again on the show today. Well, it's it's kind of mid-morning on Tuesday. <laughs> and for any of you who've listened, you kind of know I'm sure or you might recall that I've mentioned that the recording deadline is Monday, <laughs> Monday evening. Um And uh, sorry, Shiggy, about this. Hopefully, uh, I'm not going to put you under too much pressure um, in in maybe getting you to turn this around at fairly short notice. Um, And sorry to you, by the way, if you're listening to this and it's a little bit late coming out this week. um, The the reality was uh, I wasn't feeling that great last night. And this is one of the risks of doing things last minute, uh, which is my want. Um, You know, I like to do this podcast last minute because I just kind of enjoy the, um, I guess, the so called pressure. Uh, finding what I'm going to say uh, at 11th hour. But um, yesterday, I just wasn't feeling that great. I went to, uh, I've started Pilates or restarted Pilates classes recently. And I think my uh, Pilates teacher is like a, sil- a silent assassin or a smiling assassin, actually. Um, she just loves to put me through it. And I just felt a little bit overstretched probably yesterday. <laughs> wasn't feeling 100%, wasn't really up to recording. Anyway, less of that. What do I want to talk to you about today? I want to talk to you about something that I think is beautiful. And that's the um, the the idea of uh, forcing the ROI. Um, So return on investment is a financial metric. It's one that you know I use, and I'm sure many of you use as well. I'll come on to the definition in a minute and how we misuse it, including me uh, a lot of the time. But um, I I think you know I would consider one of my strengths to be what I would call financial engineering. So um, it's it's looking at um, metrics. It's looking in being able to evaluate investments. And then determine what to do based on some of those evaluations. So the the metrics alone are just a guide, um, but then we need to take a decision. So, the financial engineering combined with, say, um, in, you know, in acumen, decision making, judgment. You know, what can you do about it once you've got that data? I think those two things combined is probably one of my core competencies, or two of my core competencies, depending how you want to look at it. So, uh, and that's why I think it's a beautiful thing, because. Um, we can do so much with this thing. So just let's just dwell on return on investment for a minute. As I mentioned, we, it's a misused term, including by me. But essentially, return on investment has two halves to an equation, a top half and a bottom half. And on the top half, we have our returns, more specifically our net returns. So um, an easier one to look at perhaps on an investment is if you look at stocks and shares, dividend income would be a net income return, on our uh, stocks and shares investment. And that'd be the top half of the equation if we invested in, um, in stocks and shares. And then the bottom half of the equation might be, uh, well, is the, the cash that we've invested in the deal. That's how we get misuse it, by the way, just to dwell on that point. If you look at the strict definition of return on investment, strict definition says it's our net returns divided by the total value of that particular asset. And that's how we misuse it in property because we've we've applied that well. We've reengineered or redefined return investment to be our net returns over our personal cash investment, and uh, they're not the same thing as the total value of the investment, or they they might not be. So, um, with the uh, to, to, uh, an obvious example is if we use a mortgage. So, if we use a mortgage, you know, it's a hundred thousand property. We, we've got a seventy five percent loan to value mortgage. Our personal cash is only 25,000 plus any fees, et cetera, that have gone into it, whereas the total value of investment is arguably 100,000. And I say arguably because purchase price and value are not always the same thing, especially as time uh, goes by. But anyway, I don't want to get too complex into that. But the point I'm making is um, uh, return on capital employed, return on capital, or sometimes return on equity are perhaps better terms to use. But we, we always default to return on investment. That's you know, the terminology we probably understand in property. I misuse it too. Probably you misuse it too. There'll be people out there going nodding, going, yeah, Richard, you know, um, it's about time somebody said this. But um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, using, I'm misusing the term return on investment. But what it means is net returns divided by our skin in the game. So skin in the game is our personal cash that we've left uh, invested in that, into that asset. Now, with stocks and shares, typically the personal cash is what we pay for the shares. Um, that's what we've got invested in in those stocks and shares. But with property, as I mentioned, if you use a mortgage, which in other words is leverage, our personal cash can be somewhat reduced. So net returns over our personal cash is is let's for the, for the purpose of this conversation our return on investment. And the beauty is that you can actually play with both sides of that equation. There's only two sides. And you can play with both sides of the equation to improve your overall investment performance. And so the top half really boils down into two things. So net you know, returns, in, when it comes to property, usually boils down to one of two things. Our gross income and our total costs. Those two boil down to our net returns. Take our, take our total costs away from our gross income and you're left with your net returns. So it's pretty obvious the drivers of the top half of the equation. We either need to increase our, return, our gross uh, rental rates income, or we need to reduce our costs, or perhaps a combination of the two. And if we do that on the top half of the equation, we should get, all other things being equal, we should get an increase in our return on investment. And that's a beautiful thing. And then the second half of the equation, the bottom half of the equation, our skin in the game. Um, so if we're starting, you know, just starting out with a property investment, our skin in the game will be the cash, as I mentioned. Uh, Just forgive me, I'm using the term return on investment to mean the bottom half of the equation is asking in the game our personal cash invested. So, you know, sorry, Investopedia, all you financial people out there, I'm now also misusing the term return on investment. Uh, Maybe a better phrase is return on cash, um, you know, in this context. But there we go. So, the bottom half of the equation is our personal cash invested. Let's say that. So, what drives our personal cash invested? Well, you know, the, the three main drivers, in my opinion, or in my mind, that I wanted to share today are discount. So if we get a discount on the asset going in, regardless of what else happens, we can probably reduce our personal cash invested in that asset, our property asset. So if we have a £100,000 property, and we manage to get a 10% discount, for argument's sake, going in, we can buy that asset for £90,000. Well, if it's genuinely worth um, 100000 and we paid ninety for it, well, first of all, we're baking in equity, but I'm, I'm perhaps drifting off my point. But the main point being, if we've got a 75% loan-to-value mortgage, then we only need 25% of 90000 instead of 25% of 100000 So by definition, it reduces our cash invested. So discount is one of the obvious ones. So that's why so many people say you make your money going into the deal. So if you can drive a good bargain, um, just squeeze a little bit more discount out of it. Every single bit will increase your return on investment because it will reduce the bottom half of the uh, return on investment equation, which will drive up your percentage returns. So that's a beautiful thing. Um, the, the next one that I personally really enjoy, I call myself a value-adding investor. So discount is one way to add some value. We're forcing the discount. The second one is really to add value through undertaking some sort of project, some sort of development, conversion, added value activity in the project. So we can add an extension to add value to increase our rental returns and so on. So adding value is another great way to increase the performance. And particularly if you can add value and extract some of that value, usually by refinancing. So I like to do a project, add value, refinance to pull out some, you know, we all say all of our cash, but that's a unicorn these days uh, to pull out all of your cash and then somebody's going to write into me going, I do that all the time. But, you know, it's not that common in the current climate to pull out all of your cash unless you're adding significant value. And by significant value, you know, usually that means doing something exceptional, probably development, probably planning related to be able to recycle uh, all of your capital uh, from an investment. Or you've got a hybrid strategy which you could uh, sell part of the asset and retain part of the asset you can't do that on a single-family home, but you could do it on a development project where you've got multiple units, for example. Anyway, I digress because I can't. My mind's racing with this particular concept: how we could financially engineer uh, an asset to improve its performance. That's what I always think about. It's just something I I, uh, I spend my time on, I suppose. So um, there's two elements: discount and added value. The third one is um, is leverage. Quite frankly. So if we increase our loan to value uh, or we refinance to extract some of our original value uh, that we've added um, during the course of a project, we can increase our leverage. And by increasing our leverage, we reduce our personal cash investment. But at this point, it's probably appropriate to say um, there's a couple of things uh, to watch out for when you're playing this financial engineering uh, game, so to speak. I I like to call it a bit of a game. But I think on the bottom half of the equation, one thing to watch out for is over-leveraging. And so uh, over-leveraging, um, it can help, obviously, with the numbers, but it can in- also increase risk. So the three things to watch out for, one of which is risk and over-leveraging and you know, refinancing constantly to over-leverage and just keep our loan-to-value permanently high, will you know per- will increase our risk position, quite frankly. Uh, you have to consider that property is uh, or the property market, like most of the markets, is a cyclical market, and so we get highs and lows in terms of property prices. We get sometimes a correction, sometimes even a crash, of course. Um, some people investing today might not remember the global financial crisis, which is just over a decade ago um, and they 've just had the you know relatively good times um, for a consistent period, but it doesn 't always go that way. Trust me, there will be highs and lows, there will be corrections, there will be crashes. Now, one of the things that uh, we need to watch out for is not to be highly leveraged when we've got a crash, potentially a correction, because it can leave us vulnerable or exposed um, in terms of our debt position at that time. By the way, overleveraging, and when I say overleveraging, I mean constantly refinancing and pulling out cash from our assets, which some people advocate as a great strategy because you don't pay tax on debt, um, is flawed, in my opinion. And the reason I think it's flawed is it can make you trapped or a hostage in two main ways. The first way is if you over leverage, um, particularly getting above the original price or investment you've put into, uh, cash investment you put into, the, uh, into that particular property, it could mean that if you were ever to sell, and by the way, you say, oh, I'm never going to sell, I'm never going to sell, but you might be forced to sell. You might need to sell for some reason, and that's a risk position you don't really want to be in is that your capital gains tax bill could actually exceed your equity in some some circumstances. To be fair, that's probably where you've had extreme uh, repeat uh, uh, refinancings, but it could leave you in a position where you you don't have enough equity to cover your tax bill. You don't want to be there. The second thing that um, overleveraging can do is it can make you a mortgage hostage as well, a mortgage prisoner. And uh, what I mean by that is, if you keep overleveraging and maintaining a high loan-to-value, every say two to five years, for argument's sake, pulling out equity and and, and just going again, um, when that inevitable property price correction or property price crash comes along, and you've got a high loan-to-value, you know there's a couple of scenarios that you know you might be faced with. You might need to top up your debt or pay down your debt, actually, to top up your equity at the request of a lender. And you might not be able to remortgage out because the market, by definition, might be squeezed, there might be a credit crunch, lenders might not be lending, they may have reduced their loan-to-value requirements, and you might be in a bit of a pickle. So don't really want to be in that place either. So big watchword on the the temptation, as it were, to manipulate the return on investment by over-leveraging and then constantly refinancing to do the same. So if you're going to do anything at the, with the bottom end of the equation, I would suggest you stick with discount, uh, adding value, extract some of that value to begin with, but then probably let the loan's value slide over time, which will put you in a better position if and probably when property prices will take a correction. So probably dwelt on that quite a while. Hopefully you've uh, uh, that's sunk in. Um, but the the other thing, watch words, if you like, in terms of the bottom half of the equation – our skin in the game part of the equation. Uh, one is tax, taxation. Um, and, well, it's actually not just related to the bottom half of the equation, actually. It's, uh, it's, it's the whole return on investment. Um, our ta- in fact, it's actually the top. Richard, get, get your facts right. It's more about the top end of the equation. So um, taxation will affect our returns. I personally don't measure my return on investment on an after-tax basis, but I should. I certainly have a watch, a watch on it, and um, I just know that in general terms, I manage my tax affairs pretty well. So I kind of know what they look like. If there's a change in my tax position, it could quite significantly affect my after-tax returns. So it's something that's worth, you know, keeping keeping an eye on. And then the third one is time. So um, very often we're just tempted to look at, well, I can make loads of money on this particular deal. My ROI is, you know, stellar. You know, it's 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 double-digit. It's you know, da da da. And actually forgetting the fact that we're spending an inordinate amount of time to achieve that return. Of course, if we're spending an inordinate amount of time on investment, it's no longer an investment. It's actually a job uh, or a business. Um, And so we just need to watch out for the time that we're putting into it. And by, by words, we need actually to get better returns if we've got to give ourselves another job. Uh, but by definition, most investments are not completely passive anyway. So there'll be some time that we need to spend, whether it's due diligence going in, whether it's monitoring and checking up and talking to whoever's handling our money, if we're giving it to someone else uh, to, you know, to manage for us, or it's actually in terms of the transactions that we need to process you know, before, during, and after the investment period. So time is a really important factor as well to take into, uh, into consideration. Um, a bit of a watchword also, just, just a bit of a sidebar. So I'm kind of focused a little bit on going into a new property transaction or a new property project here in most parts. So Most of what I've been talking about is in that context. But perhaps just a brief you know, call out that uh, if you've got an existing portfolio, I have a portfolio, many of you will have an existing portfolio. Um, portfolio could be two or three <laughs> uh, properties. It's worth looking at the return on investment um, in, you know, throughout the ownership of our, our, pro- our property uh, portfolios, and uh, individual properties, obviously. And so in this context, I might replace the bottom half of the equation, our skin in the game, our cash input, with our equity instead. So I probably look at both. So I'll give you an example. Um, a few years ago, I bought a property in rural Cornwall, small town, and, um, you know, it's not, it's, well, Cornwall hasn't got many major cities anyway, but this has got, you know, fairly small town. And therefore, it was a bit sticky from a rental demand point of view. So it did okay, but inevitably, the tenants would rotate round about the summer and round about Christmas. And I'd just have an extended void period. It wasn't too dramatic, but it was just annoying. It was a bit of a niggle. And so, uh, of course, voids is another area which can affect our net rental returns, which has a bearing on our return on investment. So I was kind of looking at this and thinking, well, it's not ideal really. And, and, and I couldn't really, there wasn't massive rental demand which would drive prices up, which would fill that unit, you know, uh, particularly quickly. But one thing I noticed is that house prices were starting to shoot up. They were pretty, pretty, you know, stable or, you know, just a gradual increase for the first couple of years of ownership. And then there was a spike in growth over the last couple of years Um, I'm referring back now to a couple of years ago, I actually took the decision to sell that property. And the reason I I decided to sell that property was I looked at my return on equity. Uh, So not just my cash, I'd only left about 10 or 12,000 of my personal cash invested in that property. But meanwhile, my equity was substantially uh, above 100,000 pounds. it grown in value over the time. And so my return on equity, as opposed to my return on cash, um, was, was not looking so compelling. And so I, I, this is the moment about taking a decision. So could I then see that usually what you find is your return on investment levels off over time. There's a bit of a seesaw effect. If prices go up, your return on investment can go down. If rents go up, your return on investment can go up. And so you get this seesawing effect as house prices move at a different rate of uh, growth to rents. So don't be too hasty to cash in your chips or freak out about an investment if you've gone at finding that. Just look at it over a period of time. But this particular uh, property of mine in Cornwall, the seesaw was a bit too lopsided, if you like. The capital side of it had gone great guns, but the income net rental returns on the income side of the equation weren't really going that great. So I took a decision to cash in my uh, capital. And to reinvest it elsewhere in what I felt would give me a better income return, but also you know decent capital growth prospects too. And I made that judgment call on the fact that rental demand in that local area in Cornwall was likely to increase anytime soon. I'm probably not going to get the income side or the net return side of the equation you know climbing anytime soon. It'd probably seen its greatest capital growth over the last couple of years. And whilst you know, there probably would be more over time, I wanted to rebalance that seesaw. So that's the decision I took and decided to uh, to cash in my chips. But also, um, and here's the thing, it does bring me on to, so I've been focusing on income returns, net, re- net rental returns being on the top half of this equation of my return on investment. But we shouldn't avoid looking at capital returns as well. And so the house price growth that I'd seen on that Property in Cornwall had also given a massive return on capital as well. Um, And so my personal cash input, as I say, 10 or 12,000, had suddenly got this capital growth. So my return on capital based on my own personal cash investment was just, you know, it was probably four digit uh, growth. So, you know, double digit, treble digit, probably approaching, if not four digit um, uh, growth. And so that was absolutely stunning as well. But it probably couldn't maintain that rate of growth over the long term. So I looked at that too. So you can look at your income returns, but don't forget the capital returns. And if you reduce your bottom half of the equation, your cash investment, your skin in the game, personal skin in the game, the capital returns can be quite significant as well. And of course, if you stick in property for any period of time, you'll probably know that you're going to get, you know, your returns are going to be magnified from not just income returns, but also capital returns. Many of us look at our uh, capital growth over time is actually being the the secret, the hidden gem. Stick it around, stick around long enough and you'll see that. Um, but sometimes you can force that capital, you can take it out and you can put it into a better performing asset. I know some people say they're going to hold assets forever, properties forever, <coughs> excuse me, and never sell them. They have to pay tax perhaps on returns, but paying tax sometimes isn't such a bad thing, you know. So you can take it out at the optimal period of time to sort of minimize your tax take, if I can say that without getting too complicated, put it into another asset and go again. Uh, Of course, there'll be transaction costs. There will be taxation to take into consideration. So keep that in mind. Anyway, so um, hopefully it's coming over that I think, you know, return on investment, this financial engineering, um, and then deciding what to do with individual properties and properties within our portfolio, um, you know, looking at both sides of the return on investment equation, taking into consideration those um, those watch-out thing points of uh, taxation, time and risk, and, of course, uh, taking account of our capital returns as well as our income returns. Put it all together, and it really is a beautiful thing. So that's what I wanted to talk to you about today. That's on my mind. That's on my heart. I hope it's been interesting. It's obviously conceptual. Um, you know the, the 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 financial metrics usually involve a calculator or a spreadsheet, so you need to translate the concept into practical. Then, of course, it just gives you information from which you can take decisions and you know, hopefully make good decisions of how to go forward. But that's the, that was on my mind. That's what I wanted to share with you. Hopefully, it's been interesting. The uh, if you want to know a little bit more about it, just you know drop me a message and uh, I'll perhaps give you a few pointers. Um, that's how I look at things or some tools that you could potentially use. So, um, Which also is a cue for Drop Me A Line podcast at thepropertyvoice.net if you want to talk about anything from today's episode or indeed more generally about property investing. I'd be delighted to hear from you. Meanwhile, the uh, show notes are going to be over at the website, thepropertyvoice.net. So make sure you check that out. Before I go, just a quick point. I'm probably just going to do two more uh, episodes before. I'm going to just take a bit of a break over the Christmas, New Year period. So just mark it in your diaries. Uh, I'm just going to take a bit of a break there. But uh, in the meantime, I'd just like to say thanks very much for listening once again this week. And until next time on the Property Voice podcast, it's